What's happening, travelers? Nitsan Moser here, the Traveling Investor, and welcome to another week of the Traveling Investor Show. And this is where you're going to learn how to master your mind, body, and wallet. It's been an awesome week. I want to welcome everybody for being here right now. And we've got a great show this week. Uh, we have, uh, you know, this is where you're going to learn, like I said, how to master your mind, body, and wallet. And every week, I'm going to bring on guests that can help us understand how to master ourselves holistically, right? Whether it's how to focus on our mindset, focus on our bodies, or focus on our wallets, right? And when we talk about the wallet, you know, my whole point in doing what I'm doing is to help you create a business that will revolve around your lifestyle. You know, we're so caught up in the world today where we are running around chasing after the dollar, chasing after, you know, money too, because we have more month at the end of our paycheck, right? And my goal is to help you create passive income so that you can go out and live life on your terms, Right. We were all taught in school to, you know, get a good education. You know, we're done with high school, go to college, get that job, work at that job until we're 60, 65, 70 years old, whatever it is, and get that watch, that gold watch, and retire in our golden ages and then start living life. Well, you know, I was sold that dream. I started that dream. I was on that road to that dream. Uh, and then I realized that wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't the life that I wanted to live. I did not want to be able to start living my life at the age of 65. I wanted to live my life now. I wanted to make create memories with my family and friends and go out and enjoy life to the fullest. And this is why I have created the Traveling Investor Show and why I do what I do. And today, this week, I've got a great guest. His name, and I'm, I hope I get his name correct, Lane Kawauka. Right? And Lane has been investing in real estate for over a decade and now controls over 4,500 units. That's 4,500 units uh, all around the country. Uh, as the owner of CrowdfundAloha.com, SimplePassiveCashflow.com, and reialoha.com, Lane is responsible for finding investment opportunities, analysis, and marketing. Now, he's also obtained a BS in industrial engineer and MS in civil engineering and construction management from the University of Washington. In addition to an analytical engineering background, Lane has real-world experience in working as a project manager for over $250 million of capital construction projects in both the public and private sector. So you see, Lane did it. Lane was in that field, right? Lane was in that path of going to school, get that education, right? Go out and, and use that diploma and work and work and work and work and build up your career. But then, you know, we're going to find out what happened that made him do that shift, right? Working as a high-paid professional in corporate America and frustrated by the traditional wealth-building dogma, as we were just talking about, Lane was compelled to inspire and mentor other working professionals via his Top 50 Investing Podcast at Simple Passive cashflow.com and what i want to do right now is i want to welcome lane hey lane how are you hey aloha everybody aloha. let's get to it let's learn how to invest how <laughs> we gonna get better jobs that's right that's right so um so tell us are, are, are you're originally from hawaii 
from from the island? That's correct. I grew up here, went to school at your University of Washington, was up in the Northwest for about a dozen years. But, um, you know, live where you want, rest where the numbers make sense. I mean, that's Absolutely. Boy. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So, um, so, 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 Lane, so you started out, you know, doing, you know, that, that path that we're told to go out and to do, right? Go to school, get the education, get the job. You know, obviously, you know, you had a very successful career, you know, uh, as a project manager of over $250 million of capital construction projects and whatnot. So why don't you, in, in your words, tell us where you started and what happened that made you have that transition over into real estate? Yeah, so I kind of grew up in a family where they taught us to be very frugal with our money, um, be a good little boy, go to school, study hard. And work at that job for 40, 50 years, exactly what you're saying. Get that golden Seiko watch. It's the Rolexes are too expensive. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, just followed that linear path that I think a lot of working professionals do, where you go to school, you study hard. For some reason, I must have been good at math and science, so I became an engineer. Went to University of Washington, got into my degree, started working as a construction supervisor. And once again, following all that financial dogma, they say, go buy a house to live in. That's what I did. And then I started to realize like, well, I got this big house and I was working on the road a lot of times as most young professionals, they send your butt out on the road, traveling all, all the time. And I just decided I was going to rent it out. Uh, this was back in 2009 uh, before they had, you know, Turo and all these other things where you rent your stuff out. Um, I just thought that that house was sort of un underutilized i think they didn't even have airbnb back then so uh, what i did was i just found the property manager and started renting it out the rents they brought in per month were 2200 bucks a month and the mortgage was 1600 and to a young 20 something year old kid that was all of beer money back then but then <laughs> a few weeks went by you know i'm no dummy and i realized hey if i just do this a handful of more times i'll be able to quit my my job and fire my boss that's awesome that's awesome and so you were able to go out create passive cash flow for yourself and were you able to fire your boss well you know it takes a while right for so a lot of working professionals we make you know six figures and above it's going to take a lot of uh, time and rentals to be able to replace your salary you know i mean and I, I saw this. I mean, I I'm, I can do a spreadsheet. I can figure out how long it's going to take. I mean, this is not a get rich quick thing, right? But it's a passive investing situation where I continue to work my day job, bought a hand more a handful of more rentals in Seattle. In 2012, I had a pivot point where I realized sophisticated investors don't buy properties in primary markets like Seattle, California, Hawaii, New York, Boston. Numbers don't make sense. And when I mean the numbers, you know, like the rent to value ratio, we're looking for something that's 1% or higher. So you, you find the rent to value ratio by taking the month, monthly rental price divided by the purchase price. And you need that 1% or higher to be able to cash flow while paying all your repairs, expenses, maintenance, third party property management. Because, you know, we don't want to be your landlords, we're investors here. And then, you know, so stockpile some cash for those big mishaps in the CapEx and vacancy that those types of things so i started to invest out of state in birmingham atlanta indianapolis and then in 2015 i had 11 rentals um, all cash flowing for me 
That's great. That's great. And yeah, I agree. You know, you going out into the primary markets, you know, for cash flow is not is not a, a you know, it's not a strong point, right? It's it's a place where you can find some good appreciation, but the cash flow is very is very low because you're paying a lot of money for your for the assets, right? The 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 amount of money that you're collecting versus the mortgage payments that you'll have to pay and so forth. Um, so you were you stationed and on the islands or were you in on the continental U.S. during that time? Yeah. So for about twelve years, I lived in Seattle. Um, traveled all around Montana, Nebraska, down to Texas. Um, and throughout this time, I was able to save a lot of money because I didn't live at my date at my residence in Seattle. I was renting it out. I just lived off the company dime, right? I mean, just off the company credit card, housing and meals. So I was putting a boatload of money into investing in, into my rentals. So, I mean, on the scale of, I think like 50 or hundred grand every year was going to buy real estate and you know, I don't, I'm not a big advocate for all this creative financing. And to me, that's kind of for lower net worth guys, guys that don't make much money, but for like the working professional, it's basically comes down to how much you net at the end of the year, how much you can save to put the 20% down payments. Mm -hmm. So how would you, you know, what would be some of the things that you could tell, you know, new investors, new people that want to get involved in real estate, want to start creating something like, like what you've created, what would be their first, you know, the top three or top five things that they should do first, uh, before getting started in, in real estate and acquiring some rentals? Yeah. I mean, it depends where you are first. Right. And you know, when, when I kind of talk to new investors, kind of help them out, I kind of see where, where they're at. And this typically, you know, rudimentally comes down to how much money you got. How much money do you make every year? If you're a broke guy who doesn't make more than 50 grand a year, I don't know if I'm the person to listen to, right? Like I work with high, high net worth working professionals who make a pretty decent salary and can parlay that money to just passive investing. Um, but if you're able to save at least $10,000, $20,000 a year or have maybe 20, 30 grand of liquidity um, and your net worth is under a quarter million, certainly not a credit investor, like I would start off with a single family home turnkey rental. Um, turnkey rentals are a great way to get started. They're kind of like training wheels for investors. Um, a rehabber will fix up a beat up property, put in new flooring, new appliances, new roof, new plumbing, HVAC, you know, kind of set you up, right? Sometimes they'll even put a tenant in there for you. And this is how I started, right? I didn't know anything about rental real estate. My parents never did this. I didn't have a clue especially when I did it remotely, right? And I never even saw mm -hmm. the properties to begin with. So, you know, that's that's how I would say to get started. And you might buy one, you might buy three, you might buy five, but at some point you're, you know, this grows your net worth a lot faster than doing the stock market and that type of stuff. And then at that point, you know, you jump into syndications and private placements when you become a higher net worth investor. Right. So how did you go about acquiring 4,500 units? Share us that story. Yeah. So around 2015, I had 11 rentals, um, which is cool. I mean, I each property brought in a few hundred bucks of cash flow and I was cash flowing maybe like $3,000 a month. So at that point, um, I was, and that was maybe a part of my salary. By no means was it half or was I able to quit my day job? quite yet. So I needed more rental properties. I needed more assets that created more income for me. So I realized that at that point, 11 
to give people a little insight what it's like to own 11 rentals, it's a little bit of a pain because um, with 11 rentals, I had eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe that happened every quarter, um, like tree falling in the house, plumbing repairs, some kind of hurricane or something that happened. And then you know, in conjunction with bad tenants here or there, um, I got, I realized that, you know, it was sort of a pain. Yeah, I had professional property management to deal with these headaches and issues, but the problem there was, you know, that exception rate for $3,000 a month, that's not enough. I need $10,000 a month. They were what a lot of my clients say is their kind of their goal, their immediate goal. So you, I need 30 houses. So multiply that exception rate by three, and you can quickly realize how this becomes unscalable. So I started searching around, found syndications and private placements as a passive LP partner, where none of the debt gets put in your name. You know, you're not doing any of the management um, duties. And quite frankly, you're in better deals, right? Turnkey rentals, remote rentals, you're just pretty much buying a turnkey. There's no value add where syndications, you know, there is usually a business plan to bump the NOI to increase the, the value. Mm-hmm. So. At that point, I started to interact with higher net worth accredited investors. And then I found the world of all these other wealth building strategies where you know, the wealthy don't really pay taxes because they utilize passive TV losses, cost segregations, they do infinite banking. And I realized like there's a lot of cool stuff out there that are very simple, but simple passive cash flow. And I realized that you know it's, it, it frustrated me that the average Joe out there who's working his butt off the shrinking middle class, mm-hmm. they'll never get ahead because they're using all these really bad wealth building strategies that you're kind of duped into going into. And like we start, said at the start of the show. Right. Absolutely. So that's, that's you know, it, it's amazing. That's why I like real estate. You know, just like what you said, all of the cost segregations, depreciation, things that you can use to offset your income so you don't have to pay higher taxes and you keep a lot a lot more of that cash in your pocket as well. So so tell us about um, uh, the simple passive cash flow and 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 the different uh, uh, well let's start with simple passive cash flow. What is that and how did you start that? Yeah, so I started it back in 2015 and 16 when um, you know at the time I was buying turkey rentals. That's mm-hmm. what I was doing at the time as a, as my net worth was growing. And I think that's just a progression of investors for most people under a million dollars net worth. You got to get your net worth up to a respectable amount to get into larger syndications and private placements. So at that point, I started to, um, you know, all my friends would ask me, even before 2015, like, well, how are you buying these rental properties in Birmingham? You know, and visit it? That's crazy, man. You know, and you got like 10? You know, you got more than one? That's crazy. So, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us who listen to these finance, you know, we're, we're financial fanatics, right? And we geek out on this stuff and we, we might mention it to our friends and they'll kind of waste our time asking. Now, they waste a lot of my time asking how they did this and I got frustrated and I was like, you know what, man, you're obviously not going to do anything. I'm just going to record this stuff so that even like when I move, I mean, I eventually moved off to syndications and private placements as an credit investor and got into a lot of this other tax and legal kind of sphere. But I wanted to put it in a place where my friends could kind of recapture it, right? If they wanted to kind of follow along on the journey. So that's where Simple Passive Cashflow podcast was born in 2016. 
and it just got really popular after a while and eventually i kind of turned it more into an accredited investing channel but um but yeah i mean it's i think the problem for most like people coming into this is like you're drinking from a fire hose it seems like really confusing you're talking about all these like different strategies tools but to me it's like there's just a lot of noise out there. I mean, for high net worth working professionals that we work with, it's really simple. It, it, you know, like in a nutshell, the flow chart that I use, and you know, I'm an engineer, so I like flow charts. You got to go into good deals first, right? Syndicated deals or private placements, because now you're unlocking all the passive activity losses. So you can pay less taxes and play different levers and games with your taxes. Therefore, you keep more money and now you can invest it more. And invest it and create that vicious cycle. But also now you have a lump sum of money that you can put into an infant banking policy, a whole life over funded insurance. Again, this is something that most like Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey, they absolutely demonize this stuff, right? But why, what, what is the, the wealthy doing? They're doing it a little bit differently and that's what we kind of teach people how to do this stuff and empower them with the right information, empower them with the right um, tax and legal advice. But of course, go to their professionals to, to implement them, right? But the important thing is that the investor is armed with the right information to be able to have an educated conversation with the professional. Because, I mean, most times, 90, 95% of the time, my clients have to fire their professional because they just aren't good, right? I mean, most pro working professionals, and this is how I was when an engineer, I just did it the easy way, the conservative way right that may not be a totally aligned with what's best interest for the client and most people are probably in the situation they probably need to find a new cpa or lawyer but more importantly they need to arm themselves with information to be able to steer the ship they need to be able to dictate to their professional how they want things done if not the easy way which is not what's going to be the best for the bottom line for that client um so it's all about empowering yourself as an investor um as somebody paying your own taxes. I mean, it's your biggest expense. You better pay attention to this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's a, it's very important to have the right professionals on your team so that they can help you plan ahead and, and, and plan for the future, but plan for the present as well. So that, like you said, you don't have to come out of pocket and pay all those taxes and, and keep a lot more into it. So, you know, a lot of people, they, you know, when, when we talk about real estate and when we do these shows, you know, everybody's talking about how awesome it is, how much money they're making and things of that nature. What were some of the hardest lessons you've learned in doing syndications and buying rentals and real estate? Well, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes when I first started out, like the whole, the, the basic one is like, you know, I thought I was smart to pay off my mortgages. You know, it's not, it's not, you want to carry debt. That is of course, prudently, right. Where you cash flow, where you have a good debt service coverage ratio. But you know, if you pay down your properties, your return on equity is low. And that's really the most important thing. How is the impact to your net worth? If you have a paid off property and you're still making the same amount, 20 grand, you know, on the investment, you're likely making in the low single digits. Shoot, you better be off in a savings bond for as much liability you're taking on with a rental property, right? So that's the important thing that sophisticated investors do. They prudently, you know, check at their investments and may mean doing a 1031 exchange, which I don't like. I don't recommend those at all with passive activity losses that cost segregations, but I digress. Um, you know, we don't, we don't like, um, or you can also do, uh, HELOC, 
right? To get at, at the equity, mm -hmm. you can sell the asset, right? You're constantly pruning your portfolio. It's kind of like, um, I bought these coffee farms and, you know, like the coffee plant grows. And what you want to do is you want to kind of chop off the larger sections of the tree because it's not growing um, coffee beans. And this it's just like your portfolio. You want to prune your portfolio so you keep that return on equity high. Right, right, absolutely. So, you know, when it, when it comes to syndications or when it comes to finding the properties, how do you go about finding, um, you know, different properties and the different markets that you want to invest in? Yeah, as far as markets, we target um, places in the South uh, where there's good economic and population growth. What I really look at is rent growth. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the one, it's a clean set of data that you can look up that I think is a indicator of population economic growth. So that's where I start off first. And a lot of these markets, I think everybody's heard of Phoenix, uh, Dallas, Houston. Uh, we like Huntsville, Alabama. I got over a thousand units there. Um, Georgia, Florida, you know, these five, six states are going to kick the butt of the other 45 mm -hmm. any day. Um, more landlord-friendly states, red states, obviously. But the way we get deal flow today is just strictly by brokers. We only go after stabilized apartments. We don't go after distressed stuff. Our business plan is to take over a building that we step into cash flow day one, right? Because we feel like that, that this is the prudent way of doing things where we are able, you know, if a recession comes, we're good. We'll just continue the cash flow, right? Maybe mm -hmm. we get the rehabs done, you know, cheaper at that point because people are out of work. But, you know, the, the majority of the way we make money is through value add. So fixing up the property, putting at least four to $6,000 into every unit, new flooring, new appliances, new playground equipment, new paint job, but not really getting into any big scope, right? All we're trying to do is bump the rents up a hundred, 200 bucks across the board, but that's enough to really change the net operating income, which impacts the market price that we get at the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and let's talk about uh, your, your team, right? Obviously, you're not a lone ranger. You're not out there doing everything yourself, right? Who do you, who do you have on your team right now? I mean, a lot of people we have are like third party. I mean, so yeah, it is. We run a boutique syndication company. I'm head of investor relations and we know all our investors. We want to build a personal relationship with them. But um, yeah, we really believe in third party. I mean, third party if, management. If, if our management is not performing, it's not hitting our KPIs, we fire them. We get another mm -hmm. one. As we've done that several, a couple of times at least. Right, right. Yeah, sure. The management company is, is one of the more important team members, right? Good property management can make you money, and a bad one could, could sink the ship. Right. I don't have to call them team members. Team members are equity investors and you know people in-house staff. Property managers mm -hmm. to me are vendors. Just like when I owned turnkey rentals before, people I don't know, people call them their team. They're not totally aligned with you, right? And they're they're sort of like guns for hire employees in a way. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at a property, what are some of the key metrics that you're looking for that will kind of ring the bell for you and say this is a great opportunity for us? Yeah, so I mean, you're gonna look at the profit and loss statement and rent rolls and ensure that you're, is this property cash flow, period, mm -hmm. right? But then the, the, the thing that makes a deal for the most part are, are the rents undervalued, right? I mean, that comes in with comp analysis, you know? And there's a lot of good data sources for uh, residential commercial properties such as Coal Star. The data's out there. I mean, and it's a great way to kind of do that 
you know, analysis from the computer, but nothing really replaces walking the comp comparable sales. And this is where, you know, we work hand in hand with our property management companies. They can also come up with their, uh, we like to call it independent cost um, budgets for rehabs, defer maintenance and operating budget. You know, I come up with our numbers, you know, the team does and that they do. We want mm -hmm. to kind of see where they, they fall. And it's just multiple eyes um, kind of coming up with that, you know, blessing, hey, here's the budget that we can we can hit. Right. And and so let's talk now about your investor base. How do you go out and find investors to come into your deals? Mostly just referrals. I mean, we we perform well, they tell other people about us. And at this point, you know, we kind of bring in people that we like referrals for the most part because they understand. We don't want um, unsophisticated investors that are going to hang us at the end of the day. We want to have relationships with their investors um, because, you know, I mean, COVID could happen. We don't want investors to get upset because we withheld distributions for the health and, and longevity of the asset because they wanted their supposedly, they think that their distributions is like guaranteed. But, you know, I mean, it's like, hey man, like we had this little <laughs> thing called COVID-19, you know, we, we decided that we were gonna hold back these distributions because, um, you know, we thought it was a prudent thing to do, you know, sure. so sue us, right? Or mm -hmm. hopefully they don't sue us for something like that, right? But investors out there do that. And look, all we're trying to do out here is being prudent with people's money, work hard for them, and uh, we 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 kind of look for people that are have, have the same wavelength in terms of um, outlook. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, to look out for your investor is to look out for the asset to make sure that the asset is performing. That that's how that's how you can make sure that your investors are doing well is at the same time, right? If you're focusing on the investor, and like you said creating distributions and, you know, choking the property, that's not really in the best interest of the investor, right? You want right. the, you want the property to flourish and to function and to maintain itself and to keep going uh, for the long term, so that later on, it could pay off a nice distribution to the investors and then later on, sell it for a profit. How long do you uh, usually hold your assets for? I mean, we've held properties for as short as three years. I mean, it, it depends, right? I mean, depends on the market, depends on how much of a hassle the property, the tenant base is to deal with. Um, when we first started out, we did a lot of class C properties, a lot, a lot of headaches involved with those types of tenants. Um, you know, worse than average collections is pretty typical. Right. So, you know, once we hit the business plan, which is usually to double people's money, um, we look to sell. But if a market is still strong, you know, market indicators are still going well, we look to refinance and hold and hit the infinite return um, mm -hmm. scenario um, by refinancing people's money out, keeping them in equity. So it depends, right? I mean, it once investors are in, you know, a dozen or more deals, it just kind of becomes minutia at that point, right? I mean, that's just. I mean, currently I have like over thirty properties, and it's like it, it kind of, it kind of starts popping like popcorn mm -hmm. after a while. How did you go from one or two and scale to 30? Um, just kept buying property every every quarter for mm -hmm. the most part. I mean, it all starts with the first. The first one's always the hardest, right? Um, first turnkey rental, first syndication. I mean, it's, it's always the hardest, but 
And to me, it, I think it's there's no other way of doing it once you hit a net worth of a million dollars or greater because the beauty is you get to diversify over different projects, different asset classes, different geographic areas. And, you know, like when you do have a capital event and you have to de um, recapture the depreciation and capital gains, I mean, you should have a stockpile of passive activity losses. Some people have often over a few hundred thousand dollars or half a million dollars of passive activity losses after a while that kind of offsets that. Right, right. Okay. And um, when it comes to asset management, do you hire a third-party asset management team or do you do that in-house? No, that's us. I mean, we're the asset managers. Um, mm -hmm. And depending how you do it, it can be very you can kind of run yourself um, and turn yourself into a property management, or you can run it, I think, which is the appropriate way, which you're driving for KPIs. It's no different than, you know, single family home, you know, owners, right? You can ride your property manager and ask them to get three bids and on like a hundred dollar hammer um, every time, or you can empower them to make the right decisions and trust, but verify. I mean, there's, there's different ways for people to do it. Um, but we've kind of built rapport with our sets of property managers that they know how we want to do it. And you know, we want to kind of, at least this is how I worked when I was in corporate America and I had, I had construction staff. I mean, I, I was a supervisor. I go to my foreman and assistant foreman and those are the guys who I interact with and I empower them to make the right decisions, whatever they right. need. That's what I get. That was my role. And in a way I'm still in that same position as the managing manager. That's great. Do you bring in other people to partner up with you on your on the GP side of your syndications, or do you do it all on your own? Yeah, we, we tend to keep things very small. We don't want cooks too many cooks in the kitchen. Uh huh. Yeah, that could uh, that could definitely get uh, <laughs> get a little tricky when you have a lot of people uh, sticking their hands in there, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Do you, um, what, before you acquire a property or a new market, do you actually get on a plane or in a car and go to that market? What's your process? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bet your butt I do. Right. I mean, I, for a lot of the investors, they never go and visit these properties. And every deal I do, I'm putting my neck on the line. So, yeah, I'm going to kind of do my due diligence as best as I can. And I'm going to put my own money and my own skin in the game. Mm hmm. And how do you structure your uh, syndications? Um, you know, a lot of times people will do a 70-30 split, an 80-20. Do you kind of tend to stick to those metrics or do you have other ways of doing your syndications? Yeah, I, I don't like those complicated waterfalls. I think when it's done like that, it, it's confusing. Normally, it's just a transparent, you know, 80-20, 70-30 split. I mean, it depends, right? Like if it's a fatter deal, mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to take more as a general partner. But if it's a thinner deal, it might go less, right? I mean, people are always asking, oh, what's the better deal? It's like, dude, they're all the same, right? <laughs> all the deals, like as a passive investor, we know what you guys kind of deserve. You're buying a commodity, right? If it's a fatter deal that we find off market and it's it's just absolutely crazy, we'll take more as a general partner and we'll be transparent about that, right? At the end of the day, we're signing up to hit your expectations, which is a certain amount of returns. Mm -hmm. at the end of this the x amount right and it may be more it may be a lot more it may be less right but on the on the long term like we want we want to hit investors expectations and set it there the right way because I mean, we don't we don't get rich off investor investing in one deal and hitting a bad um 
not hitting their expectations entirely and not investing us. We need people to invest continuously with us in multiple deals and refer their friends. Mm -hmm. Sure, absolutely, right? Multiple, right? Repeat customers. That's that's. Go we'll figure, cool. right? I mean, it's like not we're not <laughs> trying to just take everybody's money and like run away to Mexico, right? We're trying to run this as a legitimate business. <laughs> I'd like to do this for 20, 30 more years. Right, exactly, right? This is a, this is a great business to be in. You can do it from anywhere in the world. If you have a laptop and a phone, you can you can buy properties anywhere in the world from anywhere in the world, right? That's right. Uh, that's kind of why we do this. Um, so, what other advice would you have people getting involved in syndications? Um, do your due diligence. Find other pure passive accredited investors to network with and build real relationships. Not just have like one random beer here or one phone call. Mm -hmm. Go in deep. Right. It's better to know one or two passive accredited investors and be good buddies with them than to know 20 or 30 one that you're just kind of loosely affiliated and Facebook friends. Right. And go in deep. Right. How do you find your investors? Well, I'm lucky. I mean, I have a podcast and they call my people book calls with me like every day and I'm kind of a lightning rod for that. But that's not very practical information for people listening right now. My advice to those people is at least stay away from the the run of the mail real estate clubs because a lot of those avenues are just filled with a bunch of broke guys or you know the free um, real estate forms. Right? It stands for broke people. Right? Those are not the crowd of, that you're trying to interact with. You're trying to find pure, passive, accredited investors are typically high net worth, working professionals. Um, I'll even also go a step further and say, yeah, you know, some people are like, all right, I'm going to go to a country club. But most of my investors are first generation wealth. They don't go to a country club, right? Country club is filled with second generation trust fund kids and they invest a little bit different. Even they even care about investing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's difficult. It really is difficult. But you know, I think it takes a few years if you're if you're not screwing around in the wrong places to kind of find the right small inner circle. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Finding those uh, investors, right? That's the key to to longevity in this business, right? Being able to find the right investors that are going to continue to invest with you. And like you said, the second generation trust fund babies, they, you know, they don't care to invest. They, you know, they made their money the easy way. They were born into it. Right. right. It's, the, it's the people that work for it that understand passive investment. Um, and, and understanding that, you know what, let me put out some of my cash and have them come back to me with some friends. Right. And, and right. that's like, you know, even beyond investing, right? Like who do you invest with? And maybe more importantly, who not to invest with, right? That's what you're going to get through a peer group. But as I've seen within my tribe, I mean, people, they, they get their oxygen mask on, they get financially free. And it's these connections that they built on square one on the journey is the people that they rely on like hey how are you building your family trust what you know how are you raising your kids what kind of value system are you kind of bringing them up in you know and, and i think everybody's listening right now can agree that they don't have many people in their circle their friends their family their coworkers that think this way that you know mm -hmm. don't invest in the stock market or don't do their 401k at work you know that question buying a house to live in you know these are sort of crazy ideas. Right. But these are the very simple passive cash flow values and ideas that I think is the quickest path and safest path to financial freedom. Sure, 
Sure, absolutely. You know, my, I, I, I joke a lot, but, uh, you know, my father, when I was a little kid, he used to tell me, you know, two types of people in this world, those that pay rent and those that collect. And son, you always want to collect, right? And that's kind of the, the mindset that we have to teach our children and other people. And that's also, I guess, the kind of mindset that we're looking for when it comes to investors, right? People understand passive cash flow understanding, you know, I work, I do what I do, but I want to have that passive income so that I can retire early. I can have the, you know, the freedom to do what I want, right? This is, this is kind of the, the investor base that we're looking for. You know, I, I remember when I started, um, when I moved back to the States in 2009, my network was zero. I had to go around and, and I was doing exactly what you, what you said. I was going to these different RIAs and I was meeting all these broke people. I have a, I have a shoebox full of broke business cards, <laughs> you know, and at the time. Uh, so it, it's very important to understand who your investor is, right? And kind of go out and network where, where they hang out. That's correct. And yeah, it, it, sometimes I got to catch myself that you start to fall on this elite, elitist attitude, right? But I mean, he, the way I, I see see things is like when your net worth is under half a million dollars, you're mm -hmm. broke. You got to make money. You got to work at a job. And, you know, my path was working my engineering job and just saving up my money until I got up to that point. And you start to realize like money is not everything, but it you know sure makes life a lot easier. And it definitely separates mentalities. Of course, there are those people, those trust fund kids that just got born with it. And you can usually spot them out pretty easily. I can tell in the first five minutes of interacting with folks, kind of hearing them talk, but you know that you're trying to find people on the same trajectory as you, I mean, and and kind of surround yourself consciously surround yourself with those people more. Right, absolutely, and and you know, um, do you do a lot of uh, work on social media to attract investors? Uh, not really. I mean, I have, I have my social medias, but I'll be honest. It's, it's like people that are high net worth, busy professionals. They're not screwing around with that stuff. You know, it's the same reason why, like, as I saw recently, Lamborghini doesn't advertise on TV because mm -hmm. the dude that's can afford a Lamborghini ain't wasting his time on television. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent. Right. So that uh, so you have to go look for these people, right? You got to go and 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 you get you actually have to become the person that will attract the Lamborghini owner, right? Well, I I don't have any Lamborghini owners. Most of my investors are just hardworking professionals. They make between a hundred thousand dollars to six hundred thousand dollars. Got a lot of doctors and dentists, and they're just hardworking folks. Good good hardworking people with good values that were most of them were taught to be very frugal. Um, there are a lot of them are first generation immigrants. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I mean, maybe you go out there and you you drive around in the Toyota Camry, right? I mean, to me, that's the mentality, or at least if that's the people you're trying to attract. Right. I don't go after trust fund kids and try and educate them on the benefits of multifamily real estate. I, I, I'm passionate about people who really deserve it. The people who like. You know, the, the shrinking middle class, the people who went to school for college for dozens of years, and they got kind of duped into this world of putting their money in the 401k, slaving away for 40, 50 years. That's what I, I've kind of set out to kind of write the world of. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, that's, that's, that's a great place to be, right? Being the knight in shining armor and helping these people with, uh, you know, build their, 
their passive income nest egg, right? Yeah, because if not, they'll just listen, listen to Cliff and Larry at work telling them to work to their 65 so they can get even more pension. I mean, that's all. <laughs> buy a house to live in, invest in your 401k. I mean, man, like if, if people just realized or had people in their network that were financially free, they'd be telling them the complete opposite, but it's just unfortunate, right? It's just a, it's just a bunch of dogma, financial dogma out there that pushes people in the wrong way. I mean, I, I was lucky. I found, I kind of fell into a rental property and very early on, I realized like, you know, I was making like 20, 30% of my money when, with a rental property and just a basic turnkey rental. When you include all the tax benefits, mortgage pay down, um, appreciation and cash flow. And then I looked over at my 401k thing and I was like, I'm only making like eight to 10%. And there's all these fees in there, hidden fees. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the heck? And then, you know, I start, started to develop this mentality and it started to get validated by many other high net worth people that, yeah, the whole system is engineered to keep the hardworking middle class working at their jobs. Because let's face it, if everybody bought a handful of rentals like I, how I did, I mean, who would build our bridges? Who would uh, get our coffee? Who would, you know, do our lowering for us or do our surgeries? Um, society would crumble. <laughs> I mean, That's true. That's true. I, I joke with my with with my colleagues, my other colleagues in real estate, and say, you know, if we all did what we did, you know, we'd have to pay each other thousands and thousands of dollars to do stuff for us, right? I, I'll give you ten thousand dollars to go get me a cup of coffee. Well, no, I'll give you twenty thousand because I don't want to do it. I got something better to do with my time. Right. So, yeah, it, it's true. Right. We, we, we're lucky that not everybody does what we do. And, uh, you know, people do need to get educated and understand that, yes, there is a better way of of making money, of living life. Uh, you know, I, 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 I stress that with my kids as well. You know, I have two daughters, one's in high school, one's in middle school. And I, you know, I always throw it in there that it's it's passive cash flow. You know, for example, my daughter's my daughter now. She's into you know the Nike Air Jordans and all these sneakers, and kids are buying them and reselling them and and doing all this. So I told her, I said, buy a pair of sneakers, turn around, sell it, take your money back, use the profit, go buy two more, go get your friend to help you out, pay them a little bit, and start doing your little business and earn you know a little bit from everybody, and you'll make a lot of money. So now they're starting to do that, right? And it's and and it's just a mindset. It's just a, a different way of thinking about things, a different way of looking at it than, you know, the norm, than what everybody else is doing, right? We have to, you know, we have to educate people to an extent, but if they don't see it and they don't want it for themselves, then they're not going to go after it, right? It, right. It, financial freedom is not for everybody. It's, it, it's, it's scary. Financial freedom is scary for people. Yeah. It, well, the path to get there requires you to get outside your comfort zone. Most people aren't going to do it. So right. I mean, that's, that's basically what it comes down. And like I said, it's the, it's the first one is the hardest buying that first turnkey rental, mm -hmm. signing your name on that 150 page PPM, right. And wiring out some money to some random person you met. Right. Um, it's scary. Uh, hopefully you do your due diligence, right. Of course. But like, you know, it, it, it it's stuff, the stuff that most people won't do. And you know what, that's a good thing. Because for those people who do cross the bridge, it's better on the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Lane, listen, man, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, you know, time flies when you're having a good time. And, you know, you, you shared a lot of information with us. Um, 
How can people uh, get uh, get more information from you? Or, you know, what podcasts, where, how can they find you? Share some information with us. Yeah, so my podcast is simplepassivecashflow.com, um, passive investing. I think if you're looking to buy rental properties, turnkey rentals, that's how the podcast started. But it eventually drifted off to more credit investor speak, such as tax, legal, um, different aspects of syndications that I, I kind of teach as, you know, as part of my investor education series. Um, email address is lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Awesome. Well, Lane, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure my uh, my listeners really got a lot out of it. Um, you know, good luck with uh, with all of your uh, with all of your real estate investing. Appreciate yeah, thanks your for time. having me. Yeah, talk to you Bye. soon. All right, my friend. Take care.